Hello, my name is Rick Banks. I'm a professor at Stanford Law School, and I'm also the co-host, along with Larry Bernstein, of What Happens Next. This weekly program offers listeners an in-depth analysis of the most pressing issues of the day. This conference call is live and unedited. Part of what makes the program unique is that our experts are given only six minutes to present, which is indeed a challenge for many academics. The presentations are followed by a lively question and answer period during which we pose questions to the experts and they pose questions and challenges to each other. The result is an unusually informative, provocative, and we hope entertaining discussion. The program is designed to be politically neutral, so listeners can draw their own conclusions. We strive to bring together the speakers who, while experts, are likely to disagree. We think this commitment to engagement across divides of partisan or ideological difference, and also across divides of methodological difference, is especially crucial when, like today, we are in the midst of a national election, one that has drawn all of our attention. We end each program with a one-minute note of optimism from each speaker. This is Larry's innovation, and it is sorely needed in this time. Now I'm pleased to turn the program over to Larry, who will introduce the speakers uh, for this episode. All right, great. Thanks, Rick. This week's topics include COVID, the future of work, deliberative democracy, and our politicians' lack of understanding and indifference to public choices. Our lead-off speaker today is Lauren Myers. Lauren is a professor at UT Austin, and she is an epidemiologist. You may recall that we spoke with Lauren on what happens next in late May. Lauren is back on the show. I want to learn from Lauren why we are seeing a surge in cases in Europe and parts of the United States. Has there been a change in behavior that explains these outbreaks, or is it the weather? I was also wondering why there hasn't been a similar surge in Asia. I also want to know if this seesaw changes in cases is our future, and will a vaccine change the future calculus? Our second speaker is Dr. Andrew Levine, who is a neuropsychologist at the David Geffen Medical School at UCLA. Andy has recently written about the brain fog caused by COVID, and I want to learn more about what COVID patients should expect the virus to cause ongoing neurological damage. What happens next then pivots to the topic of the future of work. Our first speaker in this segment is Heidi Gray. I first met Heidi in seventh grade, where we were members of the same junior high school advisory. Heidi has been, until recently, the chief human resources officer at News America Marketing, which is a division of News Corp. I've asked Heidi to tell us about how work will change after COVID, where will we work, how will managers evaluate performance when employees work from home. And should large firms use the current downturn to fire poor performers while simultaneously hiring new talent? And given the recent focus on race, will we see a rise in diversity hiring and promotion? Our second speaker in this segment is Nick Bloom, who is a professor of economics at Stanford. Nick has been doing research and surveys about how employees want to change their work interactions. I want to find out if we should expect employees to return full-time at the office or have we established new norms as to where we will physically work? I also want to know if these changes will affect productivity, demand for office space, and commuting. The final segment on this episode of What Happens Next is about democracy and policymaking. 
Our first speaker in this segment is James Fishkin, who is a professor of political science at Stanford, where he is the director of the Center for Deliberative Democracy. Jim published an article in the New York Times this last week about his current project that uses a panel of random Americans to evaluate policy choices. I hope that you'll be pleasantly surprised what our average citizens can tell us about their policy preferences. Our final speaker today is Rory Stewart. Rory Stewart spoke to our book club a few years ago to discuss his book, The Prince of the Marshes, about his personal experience governing a province in Iraq. Since Rory joined us for book club, he has been quite busy. He became a member of Parliament in the UK and held numerous positions in government, including Minister of State for International Development, for prisons, as well as for the environment. In 2019, Rory stood against Boris Johnson as a candidate to be a leader of the Conservative Party and Prime Minister of the United Kingdom in a 2019 leadership contest. Rory was an advocate for remaining in Europe and opposed Brexit. Today, Rory is a senior fellow at Yale University's Jackson Institute for Global Affairs, where he teaches politics. Rory will speak today about the failure in the current political system, particularly as it relates to politicians' ignorance and indifference to policy. All right, that ends my introduction for today's speakers. I want to encourage you to check out our new What Happens Next website. All episodes of What Happens Next are currently available at our website, whathappensnextin6minutes.com. You can stream and download full episodes or alternatively each guest six minutes talk along with a Q&A. You'll be able to subscribe to our shows in iTunes, podcasts, or on Spotify. Uh, the website will have upcoming agendas, so check out the website. All right, without further ado, I'd like to um, introduce our first speaker again, Lauren Myers, professor in the Department of Integrative Biology and Statistics and Data at the uh, University of Texas, Austin. Lauren, p please go ahead. Thank you, Larry. So when I spoke on this call at the end of May, I described how we use models and data to build Austin, Texas's five-tiered alert system which is still guiding policy and has so far managed to keep Austin slightly safer and more open than other parts of Texas. When Larry reached out to me a few weeks ago, he reminded me of what I had said on the call, which is that this virus will spread exponentially if left unchecked, and that staged systems like Austin's allow us to tap on the brakes to avoid full-blown lockdowns. Larry, you went on to ask, now that things are increasing linearly rather than exponentially, and since our hospitals are not overrun, what does that say about your models? And shouldn't we be opening up even more? Well, since that email, the pandemic has taken a threatening turn. It is again growing exponentially and overwhelming our healthcare systems in cities throughout the US and in Europe. And sadly, our models are still on track. But full disclosure, there are two important things we got wrong in those initial calculations. The bad news was that in June, we realized that Austin and many other cities will run out of ICU capacity long before they run out of general hospital capacity. And in fact, it's the trained ICU staff that are often in shortest supply. But our triggers were designed to prevent surges that exceed overall hospital capacity. So we had to recalculate and lower them to ensure that our ICUs would not be overrun. The good news was that we underestimated the impact of intermediate restrictions. Partial closures and face mask orders slowed transmission in July just as much as our March and April stay-home orders. Both reduced spread in Austin by at least 70%. This means that a strong push towards 100% compliance with face masking and common-sense low-cost measures is a viable path towards a safer and more open U.S. Like many of you, I hunger for news and I hound my colleagues for information 
about COVID vaccines and therapies, any clear ticket out of this mess. But there are also two other news streams that I follow with deep interest and concern. The first is global alert systems. Daily, we hear reports of countries shutting down according to color-coded or multi-level policies. The UK has a three-tiered whack-a-mole system where cities are rated as medium, high, or very high risk, and restrictions are imposed accordingly. France has an alert system that shuts down communities when COVID cases occupy 30% of their ICUs. And by the way, France has almost tripled its ICU capacity since April. Harvard has postulated a test-based alert system that recommends opening when daily cases drop below 10 per 100,000. And the list goes on. However, when I look under the hoods of these systems, I rarely find a clear explanation for the choice of data that are being tracked or for the specific thresholds that are being used to trigger these closures. And when we've tested them rigorously using our COVID models, we find that they're hit or miss. Some will trigger too late to avert painful hospital surges, and others will trigger too early and thus exact unnecessary socioeconomic costs. Indeed, the consequences of poorly crafted policies are playing out worldwide as we speak, and we actually have the knowledge and the compute power to build more robust policies, but we lack the political will and global coordination to make it happen. The second issue on my radar is herd immunity. More specifically, you may have heard the acronym HIT, which stands for Herd Immunity Threshold. HIT is the proportion of the population that has to be immunized either by infection or vaccination to bring the pandemic to a standstill. Four weeks ago, the Great Barrington Declaration made headlines. In short, and in my opinion, it is a misanthropic free pass to go back to the life we crave based on faulty science that would lead us to unnecessary loss of life and livelihood. If you're not familiar with it, it's an easy Google. The declaration rests on two unpublished studies that claim that herd immunity threshold, the herd immunity threshold hit is very low and that the pandemic will fade away once about 15% of us are infected. Cutting through their fancy statistics and models, the researchers basically solved an A plus B equals C equation, where C is the low prevalence of COVID in Europe throughout the summer, and A and B are two possible explanations. Either A, a large fraction of people are naturally resistant and the spring pandemic wave had already brought Europe close to the herd immunity threshold, or B, we changed our behavior and we enacted measures that slowed transmission. The researchers didn't actually have the data needed to disentangle these two explanations, so they made a hidden assumption that our behavior rebounded to normal during the summer. In other words, they basically set B to zero, and thus they mistakenly concluded that we must already be close to a very low herd immunity threshold. It's clear, though, from the math and the alarming surges ongoing in the U.S. and Europe that we are far from achieving herd immunity, and we may very well never get there. In closing, although there are certainly aspects of COVID contagion that we still don't understand, many modelers like me have turned our attention to figuring out how best to use tests and vaccines to live more freely and safely with this virus. Thanks. Perfect, Lauren. We'll come back to Q&A in a second after we finish with Andy. So our second speaker is Andy Levine. Andy is at the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA, where he is a clinical professor and a neuropsychologist. Andy will be talking about brain fog caused by a COVID infection. Andy, fire away. Thank you. Infection with severe acute respiratory syndrome due to coronavirus 2, or SARS-CoV-2 for short, 
leads to COVID-19 in an unknown percentage of individuals. There is a growing body of research describing neurologic symptoms and complications among hospitalized COVID-19 patients. Based largely on studies of other human coronaviruses, it is likely that SARS-CoV-2 has both direct and indirect neuropathogenic effects on the central nervous system. Direct effects involve the virus's ability to enter the central nervous system and cause a dysfunction to neurons and glial cells, whereas indirect effects describe how the more systemic effects of the virus, including acute respiratory distress syndrome, hypercoagulation, and acute inflammation can lead to neuropathology. Thus far, it appears that only a small minority of patients, that in a only small minority of patients, neurologic complications are severe and can include ischemic or hemorrhagic stroke, encephalitis, and other conditions that can lead to lasting cognitive deficits. However, the vast majority of hospitalized patients have relatively mild and transient neurologic symptoms during their illness, such as anosmia, headache, and dizziness. What might be more troubling is the report of persistent and varied symptomology among COVID-19 survivors several weeks or months post-illness, even those who had mild illness that did not require hospitalization. According to a recent article in the British Medical Journal, about 10% of COVID-19 survivors report lasting symptoms despite apparent clearance of the virus. Across several surveys of COVID-19 survivors, the most common symptoms reported are fatigue, body aches, and shortness of breath. Also reported at around the same rate as body aches and shortness of breath is brain fog. That is, a perceived difficulty with concentration, thinking, memory, expressive language, and our cognitive processing speed or other cognitive abilities. Anxiety and symptoms consistent with depression are also commonly reported. Because of this, mental health providers, in particular neuropsychologists like myself, can expect a substantial number of COVID-19 survivors to present for cognitive evaluation in coming months. Neuropsychologists use psychometric tests to determine an individual's ability level across a range of cognitive domains, as well as psychological functioning, and make recommendations for remediation and treatment. In patients with past COVID-19, such evaluations will likely involve questions of disability in which case we also need to opine about the cause or causes of any cognitive deficits detected through testing, as well as subjective complaints as reported by the patient. At present, neuropsychological outcomes among COVID-19 survivors post-hospitalization have not been well characterized. And considering the wide range of medical complications encountered and extreme hospital interventions required, which themselves may result in lasting cognitive impairment, it may not be possible to parse apart the causes of long-term cognitive symptoms. In addition, the cause of brain fog reported by some COVID-19 long haulers, uh, as they're called, folks who continue to have symptoms several weeks out, um, the long haulers with history of mild illness and no hospitalization is likely to be quite complicated. Physiological causes associated with post-viral infection conditions such as myalgic encephalomyelitis, and pathological autoimmunity may play a role. Others have, uh, others have proposed altered autonomic nervous system functioning similar to postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, which can also lead to feelings of brain fog. However, there are myriad potential causes of brain fog, including inadequate sleep, stress, hormonal changes, chronic pain or discomfort, dietary factors, electrolyte imbalance, medication side effects, dehydration, and a large number of medical conditions. 
and it's notable that COVID-19 survivors check a lot of those boxes. Furthermore, determining the cause of cognitive impairment in COVID-19 survivors is likely to be complicated by psychiatric comorbidities, including post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD. In the paper I co-wrote with Aaron Caseda, a graduate student, we hope to prime our fellow neuropsychologists for the coming wave of patients seeking diagnostic clarification and or disability, and to alert our colleagues about the alternative causes for subjective cognitive deficits in COVID-19 survivors. In particular, we suggested that PTSD be considered as a cause for self-reported cognitive deficits or brain fog. And this is indicated by past human coronaviruses. For example, heightened risk of PTSD occurred among MERS and SARS survivors. In addition, studies of COVID-19 have already shown significantly elevated risk for PTSD and other psychiatric conditions, including OCD, depression, and generalized anxiety. Those with severe COVID-19 are most at risk for PTSD, as this condition is known to occur in patient groups who undergo similar hospital procedures or courses, including ICU survivors, patients who are intubated and mechanically ventilated, and those who experience delirium while hospitalized. In addition, even in cases of relatively mild COVID-19, individuals are at heightened risk for poor psychological outcomes, including PTSD, due to expectations or fear of death or disability, given the media coverage of COVID-19-related mortality and neurologic outcomes. The impact of such negative illness perception and symptom expectation on cognition has been documented in other conditions, such as mild traumatic brain injury, such that negative beliefs about an injury and its effects are independently associated with persistent post-concussion syndrome and cognitive deficits. In the context of COVID-19, it may be several years before we were able to determine whether or not there are lasting cognitive deficits due to the virus itself. It may take several years to disentangle the biological, psychological, and other contributors to brain fog. In the meantime, my advice is to focus on the more common causes of brain fog rather than to assume it is caused by the virus or some sort of permanent damage. This would include ensuring adequate sleep, addressing anxiety and depression, ensuring proper nutritional intake and hydration, and slowly returning to normalcy by engaging in work, exercise, and socializing. That's it. All right, Andy, thank you. Um, okay, this we now go to uh, Q&A for Lauren and Andy first. Um, Andy, let's, let's start with you. Um, I guess my first question is, how does this virus actually directly affect the brain? Um, you know, we've heard that the number one symptom associated with COVID is the lack of smell and taste. And I assume that those functions are somewhere embedded in the brain uh, that is being somehow interfered with. How is the virus doing that? And um, is that temporary or um, permanent um, and to what extent does the fact that, do you suspect that the loss of smell or taste will be related to uh, the transience of brain fog if words are no relationship? Yeah, well, let me answer the first part. Uh, um, that I think right now this jury's still out that whether or not anosmia is is really due to some sort of neuronal dysfunction or due to non uh, non neuronal uh, cellular dysfunction. Um, now, based on other uh, 
coronavirus, as human coronaviruses, one of the ways that uh, the virus can access the central nervous system is through a uh, neuronal kind of retrograde um, transport. So it kind of works its way across uh, the axons and up the neurons into the central nervous system. So one of the nerves in which it would do that, uh, the uh, cranial nerves, would be the olfactory nerve. But at this point, there doesn't seem to be direct evidence, as far as I know, that SARS-CoV-2 actually affects um, neurons in the olfactory bulb or olfactory tract there. Um, now, as far as anosmia being related to outcomes, my understanding was that uh, there was a study that indicated that folks who present with anosmia as, their, uh, as one of their early symptoms tend to actually have better hospital outcomes um, than, than other folks. As far as it might be related to cognitive outcomes, I don't know. I think this, it's going to take a long time and some really well-designed studies to really begin to you know, parse apart what the different factors are behind lasting cognitive deficits, if, if there are any uh, uh, in COVID-19 survivors. I think it's really interesting that you Sorry, focused on me, like... Go ahead, Rick. Let me, let, me, let, let me just follow up with that because I'm trying to, to clarify here the, the issue. So, Larry, you talked repeatedly about su subjective reports of brain fog, um, you know, which is, and you talked about this as, as a matter of perhaps PTSD um, as opposed to um, some organic uh, problem in the brain, if you will. Um, so could you say more about that? Is the, is the brain fog, is it primarily a psychological uh, phenomenon, or is, it, uh, is there more objective evidence that there's something happening organically that undermines people's uh, mental functioning? Yeah, well, we don't have any evidence yet. There's, as far as I know, one case control study of uh, neuropsychological outcomes in, in COVID-19 patients who were hospitalized, and that was in China, but that was... A, a, a study that was flawed on many levels, um, and so they're they fairly identical as far as cognitive functioning goes, but the COVID folks did slightly worse on one aspect of one test, but they didn't control for things like mood or pain or just acute illness, so it's really hard to make heads or tails of the results there. But, you know, in regards to subjective versus objective deficits, again, it's going to take, take months, if not years, of study to understand whether or not just the infection itself or if the complications that come with COVID-19 or the psychosocial difficulties that come with the pandemic and the lockdown, um, all the emotional aspects and, and the loss of sleep or maybe the other symptoms that, that are associated with SARS-CoV-2 infection like fatigue and muscle aches, which can themselves result in subjective and even objective cognitive deficits. Um, and as regards, with regards to the PTSD, I, I wouldn't say that in most people, you know, PTSD would be a factor in brain fog or, or you know, measurable cognitive deficits. I think that it's probably going to be in a, 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 an appreciable number of them, but I, w I wouldn't want to say basically that anybody who's reporting brain fog, it's just, it's just psychological or in their mind. It might actually be something with an organic basis. It might actually be something that indicates neuropathology. Um, the point is that we just don't know yet and that there are a lot of other causes of brain fog or that subjective feeling that many people on this call right now may be feeling now if they had a, a late night of drinking on Halloween where you're just not firing on all cylinders and you're not feeling like you're functioning at 100% mental capacity. Okay. Um, is, is, is there what? 
one one problem is is there evidence though that that people who who have recovered from COVID that their mental functioning is impaired even I mean whether that's from psychological causes or organic causes is there I mean do, do we have much evidence on that? No, again, the only study that I'm aware of was a case control study out of out of China, and okay. it showed a very a very a very small difference on one test, but again. There's so many things that they did not consider in that study that could better explain the results than just the infection itself, that you can't really make any, any conclusions based on their results. I think what it's okay. going to take is just really well-designed cohort studies, the same types of studies that we used for, uh, you know, I have a, a background in neuro-HIV, so studying how HIV affects the brain, you know, over three or four decades, we learn a lot of lessons of how to study it and how not to study it and how, what to attribute cognitive deficits to. And, you know, I think the best studies, the, the, you know, to study that, and I think it can be applied in the case of COVID-19 to, uh, as well, are cohort studies where you have, you, you recruit a large number of individuals, some of whom are going to get the infection while they're uh, participants in that study. And you can look at the before, carry, during, and after effects of the infection on their cognitive functioning. Um, I have much. a question about um, comparing this with the 1918 flu. In the 1918 flu, um, there wasn't, I don't think, as much um, publicity or public, immediate public concern as we've tried to do in our society to, to change behavior now. Um, but one of the benefits is we can change behavior, uh, but one of the outcomes maybe is that we um, encourage PTSD. How, do, how should we think about uh, the context of the sense of fear and stress that we're putting in our society in order to in order to change behavior. Um, so, are you saying that are you are you suggesting that we're putting the the, the idea out there? We're priming people to develop PTSD based on yeah. On, yeah, yeah I, I would I would agree to that. I would agree with that completely. I think that because you know information is so available now and spread so rapidly as compared to 1918 everybody knows or everybody believed at least early on in this pandemic that there was a very high mortality rate you know five between five and seven percent i think at some point and i think that's come down substantially um but you know can you can imagine you know if, if you're at home and you start developing shortness of breath and you can't get into the hospital for whatever reason and you're you don't have any sort of support and you're basically feel like perhaps you're drowning or you're going to suffocate um, that that's very traumatic that you're facing your you're, you're on death's door doorstep there and so that could be very traumatic and, and certainly I would think lead to post-traumatic stress symptoms or disorder um, now had this happened without you know more information being out there if there was somebody living on a mountaintop somewhere who got uh, you know infected and and started developing some of these symptoms they might just pass it off as the flu or a bad cold and not think that they might die and that there's a high mortality risk related to the infection so yeah i think that just the availability of information now and the fear um you know that one could die or, or face grave disability um, is is going to increase the the rate of developing post traumatic stress symptoms and, and disorder. All right, Lauren, I want to bring you in. Lauren, obviously, uh, I imagine you, you take a different perspective on that same question. Um, you're desperate to try to change behavior uh, for individuals, even if it risks PTSD, because you know there are lives on the line. How do you think about that same question and trade off? Well, I haven't thought specifically about that trade-off, but certainly, you know, there are all sorts of 
socioeconomic cost of asking people to stay home or change their um, change their work behavior or not go to school. And, and we, we certainly do think about those things and to the extent possible, um, try to incorporate that when we're, we're trying to help policymakers come up with game plans. And this is, this is the whole premise of these alert systems that we've you know, built for Austin and thought about elsewhere. The idea is we want, we want to take action when we need to, but really at the last possible moment so that we can keep um, society as open as possible for as long as as long a period of time. So, um, and, you know, and, and also just sort of, you know, recently it's been a lot of effort to just socialize kind of low cost measures like face masks and just voluntarily keeping your distance while still, you know, going out, going to work, et cetera, measures that will reduce risk without causing too much stress, causing too much hardship, et cetera. So I think we, we certainly do try to, come up with strategies and account for in our models um, the substantial cost of asking people to stay home and putting other restrictions in place. And what, um, let's take just one variable like weather. Um, mm-hmm. Clearly we have, I'll call it almost an infinite number of weather experiments that go on every day across the, across the world. And then we get to look at, you know, five days later what happened to cases what have we learned about weather um, in the last six months, whatever the period you know, of time? I, I think there's just a ton of uncertainty. I think that there's, um, I, I, you know, I think a lot of experts would are concerned about what's going to happen as things get colder. Um, it may uh, mechanistically allow the virus to spread more easily, but I think the more, you know, obvious impact is going to be people are going to be less likely to be outside. They're going to be gathering indoors. Um, it's going to just change our social contact patterns in a way that is going to be more conducive to the spread of the virus. So it's, I think things are still uncertain as far as sort of the, the physical impacts of weather on the transmission potential of the virus, but the behavioral implications, I think, are, are going to be negative going in the next few months. What I think is interesting is before, you know, when this first started, we thought that the, um, we, had a ven- we, had, we didn't have enough ventilators, um, then we didn't have hospital beds, um, and now you're saying the limit isn't even ICUs; it's really ICU nurses. Um, how, how, if in whatever we have, we we built a lot of ventilators. I'm not sure they were necessary. If you're right that the weakness is ICU nurses, can we cross train or build extra? You mentioned that we've obviously expanded our ICU space. What can we do to sort of resolve, I'll call it in the least expensive way, to expand our hospital's ability to take on um, a surge? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know the answer to that question. You know, I think we need, you need to talk to the folks who are in the hospitals, you know, on the, on the front line there. But I think the question is really, is that, is that the direction we should be going, right? We actually have ways of avoiding overwhelming surges in our, in our ICUs by, uh, enacting measures uh, in enough time to slow transmission or just really um, doing more to increase compliance with face masking and these other measures we talked about earlier. So, it's, you know, yes, we absolutely do want kind of fail-safe mechanisms so that if things don't go as planned, we have capacity so that we can give everybody, not just COVID patients, but everybody access to um, safe and rapid health care. Um, but I think the first question we should be asking is, can we just figure out ways to avoid that situation in the first place. 
And, and what would that be besides mask wearing? Well, so you know, if you know, if you can, if we can get our communities to the point where, um, okay, I guess there's a, there's a few different approaches. One is you go into very restrictive measures for a period of time, and you wait until the virus has really subsided. You wait till prevalence is very, very low, and then you start opening things up cautiously and with more testing, tracing, contact tracing, isolation resources in place so that when it starts spreading again or when there are clusters, we can nip them in the bud, right? So, what, so one approach is let's just like press pause, bring this thing under control, and only then start sort of relaxing and going, you know, going back to normal um, with things like face masking. Um, and if we're not willing to do that, as it seems like a lot of the world is not willing to do, and we're, we're in a situation like we're in now where we, we keep having to battle these surges, um, and we want to like restrict. We want we we're willing to do stay home orders or more restrictive measures, but only at the last possible moment. Figure out when that last possible moment is, so that when you enact those measures, you're not act, enacting them after the point of no return, right? We know, like we know from what happened in New York, right? And there's been these that surge in in the spring. That um, there've been studies that have shown that if we went into that stay home order, maybe even just two weeks earlier the fate of that surge, the fate of that early wave would have been much better. It would, no, it would not have gotten to the alarming point that it did and far fewer people would have ended up in the hustle and died, right? And just, you know, just a matter of a couple weeks. Um, but certainly we, we just wouldn't have wanted to enact measures two months earlier, right? Because that would have been sort of unnecessarily costly for the, for the community. So, so there is a sweet spot. There is going to be kind of the right moment to um, enact stricter measures so that we can both avoid these overwhelming surges and also minimize the amount of time we have to spend under these restrictive orders. But the trick is to figure out what is, what is the timing of those? What are the indicators of when we need to do that? Yes, and Lauren, how – this is Rick. I'm sorry, are you done? Go. How, how, how confident are you that we can identify – what you refer to as the sweet spot uh, beforehand, right? I mean, it's going to be a lot easier looking back to say, oh, you know, we did this too soon or more typically we did it too late. Uh, but the real challenge is to identify it uh, on the front end. So how confident are you that the, the science and the predictive models allow us to make the right call at the outset? Um, so I, well, I will say that it's better to use data-driven modeling and science to try to come up with the best possible predictors, the best possible data to track, the best possible thresholds, um, and to do it in a way where we're really using kind of our, our best, our most recent understanding of how the virus is spreading, use models that have shown some predictive power to come up with those thresholds. Now, is that going to guarantee we're going to get them just right? No, probably not, but it's, I think it's better than just sort of, I mean, I don't want to say, I guess almost shooting from the hip or using expert opinion or, you know, I think it's, it is really better, better to let the data inform those very quantitative types of policies. Um, and we, the kinds of analyses, you know, we and others do is we, we try to uh, not only come up with what these thresholds or policies should be, but we also try to um, do uncertainty quantification and, and do some analyses around how robust will these really be? What if we're wrong? What if the virus actually spreads much faster uh, under a certain set of policies or much slower under a certain set of policies? You know, what sort of guarantees does the policy have? And, and then, and so I think, you know, we, we can't know with certainty, but there's a lot we can do with what we understand so far and these, these data-driven models that have shown 
some success in at least short-term forecasting of how the virus is spreading in communities around the globe. Okay. You know, I heard um, about one study where um, instead of testing and tracing who used, you saw afterwards, um, what you did is you tried to trace who you caught the um, COVID from. Because in, it turns out that not everyone spreads the disease uh, evenly, that there are super spreaders, and most people actually don't spread at all. Um, and if we can contain the super spreaders, that's where we want to go. Lauren, have you thought about um, containing super spreaders relative to a general population and, and what that means? Um, yeah, I mean, I think, well, let me think. So... It's really hard at this point to know who's going to be a super spreader. We have a lot of anecdotes, right? Of, and it seems like a large number of super spreading events. Um, uh, well, not so much the events, but the, the people who actually were the super spreaders. Right. And the, 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 yeah. So the people, so these events, when they try to figure out who's the person who did the spreading, you know, they're, mm-hmm. they're often people who felt perfectly healthy when they, when they were spreading. They went out to dinner. Right. They went and sang in their choir. They went on the boat. Whatever they did, they went to the wedding. They think, and um, and it's really hard at this point. We don't have um, we don't we don't know what the risk factors are at this point for for super spreaders. You know, from the moment someone is infected. And so, um, it, can we know ex post? I mean, when we've realized that they are the super spreader, and shut them down, or do something special to the typhoid Marys of the world? Right. Well, I mean, that's an interesting idea. The, the issue is that you know, from what we know about kind of the course of the virus and someone who's, who's been infected is that, you know, this, these super spreading events probably happen within the first few days, you know, within the first week of somebody becoming infected. And if you don't identify that they're a super spreader until a few days after their first batch of transmission, they may already be through their infectious period and no longer be, you know, a risk of being a future super spreading. So it's just sort of this timeline issue where it happens so quickly. Somebody gets infected, they don't know they're sick, then suddenly they're very infectious. They, they, they infect a bunch of people, and within a few days they may not be infectious anymore. Um, and so there's, you know, there's this very tight window, and just at least given the sort of testing, contact tracing, and isolation programs that we have in, in most cities in the U.S., I, which I just think we're just not fast enough to be able to do that. How do you think about... Um, kids versus, um, I'll call it the elderly with comorbidities. Um, early on in the crisis, we thought about maybe we should let kids run wild and lock up the, uh, the elderly. Um, how do you think about that same question now, now that we know so much more? Yeah, um, I think the issue is that, uh, you know, that's, that's difficult to achieve. Um, and it's not just the elderly who have the comorbidities. There are, you know, the high-risk groups, span all age groups, people with all sorts of underlying conditions, and certainly there are perfectly healthy kids who end up in the hospital, but it's pretty rare. Um, but, you know, I think one of the biggest issues with this sort of herd immunity type strategy where we're going to try to let it, you know, rip through the low risk part of the population and keep everyone else cocooned or sheltered, the issue is that we, we really would have a very hard time doing that in the United States. Actually, a study that we just published this week um, was based on a, uh, a forecast, a projection that we made back in March when um, right after Austin enacted its um, stay home, work safe order, which included um, shutting down a lot of the construction industry in Austin, um, the Texas governor overruled that and said, you know, 
construction can proceed, any kind of construction. And the city government asked us to make projections as to what would this mean as far as risk to the construction workforce, as well as um, risk of spillover of transmission into the community as, as a whole. And we didn't know that much about the virus at the time, but we, we made projections on the model based on the models we had in hand. And at that point in March, we projected that if construction, uh, the, the construction workforce, which is about 50,000 in Austin, which is a city of about 2 million, um, went back to work without taking uh, sufficient worksite precautions, we would expect the construction workforce to have about five times higher uh, risk of hospitalization due to COVID than other people in other occupational categories in the same age groups. And, um, and when we looked back uh, in August and we actually got occupational data for people who had been hospitalized for COVID in Austin, our projections almost, the data fit our projections almost to a T. You know, it was just, just about five times uh, relative risk of COVID hospitalizations among the construction workforce relative to others. And so, um, and these are not, and, and this is a workforce like many others that, you know, low paying, can't afford to stay home from work, no incentive by employers to stay home if they have symptoms. Um, a lot of overlapping vulnerabilities because of lack of health insurance, lack of access to preventative care, higher rates of comorbidities, less likely to seek care for COVID when they do get really sick uh, in a timely way. And so this is one of many examples of why it would be very difficult to, to actually uh, take a herd immunity strategy where, um, where you really successfully protect those who are most likely to end up dying from the virus. All right. Uh, with that, I'm going to pivot uh, to our second segment of the program, which relates to the future of work. Um, our first speaker is Heidi Gray. Heidi is the former Chief Human Resources Officer at News America Marketing, a division of News Corp. Uh, Heidi will be speaking about the human resources adaptation following COVID. Uh, Heidi, go ahead. Thank you. COVID-19 has placed the human resources function in the eye of the storm. At the early onset, HR practitioners determined their company's essential and non-essential workers, navigated shelter-in-place orders, relocated their non-essential workers from the office to their homes, implemented furloughs, layoffs, salary reductions, all while ensuring the safety of its employees and their families. These teams have also played an essential role in monitoring workplace sentiment and maintaining the psychological well-being of its employees. Clearly, there was no blueprint for how to address the human capital challenges surfaced by the pandemic, and it's evident that a unified approach to reentry will not solve the complexities of the marketplace in its aftermath. Today, HR teams are challenged with reimagining the who, the how, and the where we work and how it will get done. So now, what happens next? I will focus on three emerging trends shaped by COVID-19, including workforce planning, the gig economy, and diversity, equity, and inclusion. The current talent equation represents an interesting juxtaposition as millions of jobs were lost, and yet the war on talent continues to make up the new battlefield throughout the pandemic. Companies agile enough to pivot their business models to address new consumer demand, for example, clear, known for their biometric data to expedite airport clearance, expanded their usage case to provide employee health passes for sports teams, restaurants, and corporations. We've also witnessed exponential growth across e-commerce and businesses such as Amazon leading the talent acquisition pack as they are in the hunt for over 100,000 new employees. 
Employers' top response during the 2008 recession was to dramatically scale back recruiting and freeze hiring. But it's important to note that companies who at the time employed selective hiring of high-performing employees from the labor market proved to be one of the most effective responses to the crisis. In a recent Forbes June 2020 CEO study, 60% of firms froze hiring, one-third cut pay, and a quarter furloughed and laid-off workers. Stopping all hiring can be a knee-jerk reaction, and oftentimes it's a misstep we see many companies make when what they actually need to do is create a strategic workforce plan that can identify critical skills, not just roles needed for future growth. If you have the ability to hire when others are not, you'll certainly put yourself in an opportunity to onboard the best and the brightest talent at a competitive market rate instead of waiting until the competitive set catches up and is on the road to recovery along with you. Companies should simultaneously terminate underperformers to fund these strategic hires. A recent Corn Ferry study predicts that in the next decade, there'll be a massive global talent shortage of 85 million workers in skilled talent across financial services, technology, and manufacturing. The global work-from-home experiment, now entering its eighth month, will play a major role in the how and the where companies source for talent. Historically, the biggest career-limiting question during the interview process was when talent was asked, will you relocate? Surprisingly, There are still companies today asking this question in the midst of the pandemic during the interview process and not willing to extend flexibility. Now more than ever though, talent will continue to call the shots on the where you will work question. Gartner Research states over 30% of organizations are replacing full-time employees with contingent workers as a cost savings measure. While gig workers offer employees, employers great workforce management flexibility, it can also potentially solve many of the skill gaps that they face. There's a significant infrastructure and practical considerations that companies need to figure out. These include performance management, pay scale, employee relations, and compliance, to name just a few. As companies shift to a larger, flexible workforce, these issues need to be resolved. As companies architect their re-entry and land on the right balance of employees working from home and the office, Companies' managerial roles and employment practices need to be redesigned to facilitate these shifts across the full, part-time, and gig populations. Questions such as, when does the clock start? When does it end? How will my performance be evaluated? Will need to be asked and answered. We need expanded definition of what constitutes sexual harassment and discrimination in the virtual office. Employment lawyers are now busy at work contemplating how people misbehave in their work-from-home environments in order to orchestrate the right type of protections. When is an employee at work and when is she not working? (laughs) We joke about only wearing sweatpants or pants at all, for that matter, while on Zoom or video conferencing. But as companies formalize and scale work from home, there will be new considerations, perhaps even a dress code. We've demonstrated tremendous empathy throughout the pandemic for parents managing childcare and elder care challenges. Yes, we've all listened to screaming kids and dogs barking. And, and um, as we emerge with our new work from home structures, will that type of empathy last? 
Although diversity and inclusion efforts in the workplace received heightened attention throughout the last decade, an important trend we witnessed in the early stages of the pandemic was that some American companies slashed their diversity and inclusion roles. In addition, job postings for these roles fell nearly 60% between March and June, compared to a 28% reduction of overall roles. Then in the aftermath of George Floyd's death and the Black Lives Matter protests this summer, companies did an about-face and immediately focused on bringing back this talent that they just let go. These choices demonstrate a company's reactive approach and display an unwillingness to invest in long-term systemic cultural change if there isn't a media contribution to the bottom line. These outdated metrics need to be replaced. We're seeing many millennials and Gen Zers holding corporate leaders accountable for fostering inclusive environments. They're evaluating prospective organizations based on a company's behaviors, their culture, and their policies. Last month, Glassdoor, a website that reviews potential employers, launched a new feature for employees to rate their company on diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts. This is just one example of how the talent is driving fundamental changes across organizations. Leaders that insist on and create organizations where there is a quality of opportunity are doing the right thing today. This investment will prepare their organizations as an employer of choice for generations to come. Perfect. Thank you, Heidi. Um, we'll come back to you in Q&A in just a minute. In the meantime, I'd like to ask Nicholas Bloom to speak next. Nicholas is a professor of economics at Stanford, and he will be discussing uh, the future of work. Go ahead, Nick. Great. So before the pandemic, uh, working from home for a fully paid day was pretty rare. So I know a lot of people would work in the morning and the evenings, but for a full paid day was rare. So we know from fantastic uh, census data in America, only 15% of people did this on an occasional basis, so like once a month, and only 2% of people did this full time. So, of course, everything changed with the pandemic. So during the pandemic, it surged to 42% of people work from home full time in May. So that is just an enormous increase. So that's a 20-fold increase of people working from home full time. Uh, I'm guessing that most people listening right now, including all our panelists, are probably working from home full time if you're working. Um, the number's fallen a bit, so I've been running a monthly survey of 2,500 Americans aged 20 to 64. And by October, we see the numbers that are working from home full time is down to 34%. But, you know, again, that is still massively higher than 2% before the pandemic. So just, you know, a seismic shift towards working from home, you know, something like something you've never seen before. So then the big question, uh, you know, to borrow the, uh, the phrase, and as Heidi said, uh, of the show is what happens next? So what happens post the pandemic when presumably we have a vaccine? I'm not sure when that will be, but let's think, I don't know, 2021. So from surveys of around 15,000 Americans aged 20 to 65 over those multiple months, I have a separate panel of around 1,000 firms, and you know, since, since the beginning of the pandemic, I've been speaking to like multiple execs every day, so I've already spoken to, I don't know, you know, 100-plus execs and CEOs. I think actually a pretty clear pattern is emerging for where we're heading. So this is, this is what seems to be emerging. For those of us that can work from home, which is about half of people, including, I'm guessing, again, most people on this call, it's looking like post-pandemic, We'll be doing this probably two days a week. So the most common pattern I'm hearing is firms are saying, look, Monday, 
Tuesday, Thursday, everyone comes in the office. We're all going to be in. We're going to have all our client events and meetings and team presentations and lunches and leaving events and training sessions, etc. Wednesday, Friday, those are working from home days. We encourage you to work from home. It's not you don't necessarily have to. You have to remember there are you know, some particularly younger people in small apartments that don't want to, but we're going to set the tone of the CEO downwards, basically work from home. And, you know, that has three implications. So the first implication is very positive. The first two are positive. The third is less so. So the first implication is positive, which is I think this is genuinely great for society. So as I've shown in research now, I've been working on working from home, uh, you know, going back more than a decade. I did a, I did a big randomized control trial on a large multinational with thousands of employees. So typically you see when people take days to work from home, their productivity is around 10% higher. And the reason is two things. One is, uh, you know, in America, for example, the average commute's about an hour a day, and people working from home end up working about half of that time extra, and the other half they take as leisure. But that means they're basically working more minutes when you're working from home. The other factor is it seems that people are actually more efficient per, per minute uh, you know, however distracting you think it is at home, and I'm aware, I have four kids, so under the pandemic is awful. But, you know, post-pandemic, our kids will be back at school. We're not going to have to be sharing rooms with spouses, etc. So however distracting it is at home, it's far, far worse in the office. You know, I have horror st- stories of people complaining about things like their colleagues clipping their toenails and, the, you know, and the desk next to them, etc. So working in the office or working at home turns out to be about 10% more productive. So that's great for firms. The other side is it's also great for employees. So the first big upside is I think it's a huge positive for society when we move post-pandemic to something like two days working from home. The second upside is it's going to reduce the density and the price of cities. So as people move out, which is already happening in droves, uh, cities become cheaper. They're moving out to the suburbs, the exurbs. Which, of course, makes sense. If I'm only, you know, working, even post-pandemic, more extremely now, but if I'm only working, you know, in the office three days a week, it makes sense to move out because I have less commute and I'm going to spend more time at home. Now, I think this is, again, a very good thing because it makes cities cheaper and more livable. So you can probably hear from my accent, I'm British. I grew up and lived in London till my early 30s, you know, most recently in Paddington and central London. And I live in Stamford, very near San Francisco. So I know London and San Francisco pretty well. And they're both fantastic cities, but they're just incredibly expensive. And it looks like the pandemic may reduce rents and density, may cut rents in you know, a long run and property values relatively by, say, 25 percent, 30 percent. It's hard to be sure, but certainly a substantial hit. And that, I think, is genuinely good for cities. It will mean more people can move in in terms of, you know, a bigger mix of people. You might have a bigger apartment for your money or it's just more affordable. The final outcome Uh, which I think is the one downside, is inequality. So in our surveys, people report working from home is as valuable to them as something like an average 12% of salary. So that seems like a huge number, but if you think about it, if you can work from home, sorry, I should say the option to work from home two days a week. So if you think about it, post-pandemic, you can work from home, say, two days a week. You know, that's a pretty major shift in the ability to live further out, to reduce your commuting time, to potentially get a nicer, larger house, etc. So this is seen on average as a very valuable perk, roughly the same as, say, med- medical insurance or uh, a generous pension. The issue is not that, you know, that's a great thing. The problem is it's only going to high earners and the educated. So 
in the survey data you see, people with a university degree or more are 10 times more likely to be working from home than those that left school before completing high school. And of course, the reason's kind of obvious. Uh, you know, university graduates, like probably, again, everyone listening, you know, tend to have more professional managerial jobs. They use computers. They don't basically need to go physically into work every day. If you look at people that left school, let's say, at 14, 15, they're much more likely to work in shops, restaurants, maybe factories, and they basically need to physically be there. So, you know, I want to end by saying this is fantastic, except we've got to be aware that the benefits of working from home are not going to everyone. They're ending up looking like they're going to go very heavily to the better educated, the higher earners, which have already in the last you know, 10, 20 years seen uh, dramatically improvements in living standards and earnings. Okay, thanks. Okay, Nick. Let me throw out a question to, to, to Nick. Just to, this is Rick. Just to follow up on, on your last point about inequality, because it, it, it seems that you're, you're correct clearly that the, the high earners, the better educated workers, they're going to reap most of the benefits from working at home. But many of the changes you talk about seem that they would benefit low-earning workers as well, right? If the cities are less expensive, it'll be easier to find housing or easier to find apartments. Uh, if, the, if there's less, if there are fewer people commuting, uh, it'll be easier to get to work uh, for the lower-wage workers. So it seems that everyone's actually gaining from this. It's just that the magnitude of the gain is going to be greater for the high earners and for the low earners. Is, is that correct, or am I missing something? No, I think you're right. Um, if you're a low earner, I mean, imagine if you're, you work in the service sector in the center of a city, you can now afford, sorry, <clears throat> can now afford to uh, live near work. So that's clearly better for you. It's just that the benefits are disproportionately going to the high end. And it's a question about how much we care about this. We've seen, by the way, through you know, the last 100 years, earnings of everyone has gone up, even the bottom half. Uh, over the last you know, 50 years, their earnings are up, but we're much more concerned about inequality. So, yes, I don't want to say it's a big negative, but it's certainly an issue. It's come up a lot, by the way, with CEOs. When I've talked to them, they've said, you know, in fact, there's also quite a few manufacturing and healthcare that raise this, that they have workforces that are half on site and are, you know, had to face infection risk, uh, they haven't, you know, they've had a terrible pandemic. They've kept their jobs, but not like, you know, basically your listeners, are like me, for example, I've, you know, maintain my job, but I've got to work from home. So it is an issue. I don't want to say it's a, you're right, it's not a negative issue for the bottom end, but they're aware of the fact that most of the benefits, not all of them, but most have gone to the higher end. Thank you. You know, and for tax policy, you know, we can't tax um, earnings that are shifted into a called the non-taxable sector, like additional leisure, uh, lower commutes, or even you know property taxes that are much less out in the exurbs versus in the central center city. Uh, how do we? How, does it matter how this affects the uh, tax policies? You know, I, I have to say my you know my my views are pretty free market as an economist, but. Uh, I think this pushes us towards increasing tax rates, probably on higher, earner, higher earners, which would you know, include myself and, again, most people listening. That has been the cost of the pandemic. It's very clear if you look at the unemployment numbers, they've surged far more for the low skill because they do the kind of jobs that have been affected by the shutdown. Now, we've had stimulus, which has you know, offset a lot of the losses, but that stimulus is wearing off. And long run, you know, they're not going to get these benefits. So I think all else equal, it nudges us honestly towards relatively increasing the taxes on higher earners and relatively reducing the tax on low earners. In fact, given the stimulus, there's not going to be much tax cuts. I mean, whoever wins this election in the medium term are going to have to face, we've got a far 
bigger deficit. So, you know, I, I you know, I, I don't influence tax policy, but I'm you know, my sense is given what we've seen, this is another reason why I suspect when taxes do go up, which they're going to shortly, they're going to hit the higher owners more than the lower owners because they've not done as badly from the pandemic. And what about the economics of cities? Um, normally, we notice that wages in Silicon Valley are higher for computer scientists than um, computer scientists who work outside of Silicon Valley. Uh, but now we're talking about potentially having people who work for Silicon Valley companies not actually work there. What do you think was driving that original uh, extra compensation to Silicon Valley workers? I assumed it was that face-to-face communication, that face-to-face knowledge, that face-to-face um, interactions that were creating value. To the extent that we no longer have those face-to-face interactions, does it destroy productivity economy-wide? Um, do we, is there less learning uh, less technical innovation? Yes, yeah, so I, I want to, you know, there's something that gets uh, confused a lot in the media, which is the difference between full-time working from home, which we're doing right now, many people are, you know, they're, they're just not, I haven't been into my office, I've been once in the last six months through, and that was just to remove my plants, I had to clear my office out. Um, but, you know, for, for full-time working home, it's completely different from what I think is going to be post-COVID, which is two days a week. So when you talk to CEOs, the big thing they're worried about full-time working from home is that lack of creativity. I mean, for example, the late Steve Jobs was famous for saying, you know, it's the water cooler discussions. I saw Reed Hastings made some comment about saying, you know, working from home. I think he used a rude word, but he was, he was pretty negative on it. So... I think we need to come into the office probably two, three days a week for most people to get those creativity benefits. The other two things that come up a lot, by the way, are culture. People are very worried about, you know, workplace culture and motivation. And the fun one is mental health. Uh, I, you know, there's, there's increasing evidence of a kind of tsunami of mental health issues. So post-COVID, I don't think we're going to have people, you know, living in Mississippi working in Silicon Valley. It's more that you can be, you know, an hour commute out rather than 30 minutes commute. And so it means the very center of cities you don't need to live in them quite as much because you're only commuting three days a week and you can move out to the suburbs. So I don't think it's cataclysmic. You know, just, just to set the scene, American and you know, actually European cities as well have been on, on an upswing since 1980. So 1980 was like the low point of cities. They were, you know, I remember when I visited New York in uh, about 1981 with my parents. It was like two armed guards with guns and McDonald's in Times Square. They were, you know, scary places. And in the last 20 years, they've done fantastically well. I think cities are going to step back a little bit in terms of valuation. So maybe the, you know, relative prices will go back to the year 2000. They're still very expensive. They're still much more expensive than the suburbs, but not quite as cripplingly expensive as we, as we saw in 2019. Let's bring Heidi into the discussion. Heidi, um, Nick's talking about working from home two, three days a week. How is management supposed to evaluate their employees that work from home? How do we judge performance? How do we make them more productive? How do we make sure that they're doing the work we want them to do? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, what we have seen over the last several months, certainly, is that um, the outcomes of projects and the outcomes of, of deliverables are, you know, they're either there or they're not there. So, um, you know, in, in some ways, it's made it even easier to cut through 
um, some of the dynamics that take place at the the, the office because the, the projects are in. I think what what Nick is referencing in terms of um, the culture piece and the mental health piece, I, I do agree. Is is reentry is planned? Every organization is going to need to land on what is the right, um, you know, what is the right strategy in terms of on and, and off days. But, um, you know, the the ability for a manager to, to tr- you know, truly train and develop, it is happening today virtually. And there's, you know, been this onslaught of tools that have emerged in the marketplace to, to help you do that. Um, and that will continue. I also think um, what we've seen, and this will be really interesting, um, you know, over the next uh five to 10 years is that, you know, our children that are in high school and college, they're all learning remotely now for, for the most part, right? So the ability to, to digest and grasp information and, and make it actionable is that they're, they're learning just like they were digitally native. Now they're, 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 you know, learning and developing native. So I think that should be really interesting as, as we re-enter in terms of how are you training? How are you developing? How are you coaching? And ultimately, how are you evaluating and then rewarding performance? Um, you know, certainly technology platforms will um, be expanded, but at the end of the day, you still need that, that one-on-one contact and, and constructive feedback to um, to really understand where your your contributions are and where your career is headed. You also mentioned in your talk about um, when you do work from home, when are you at home and when you, are you working? When does the clock start? When does the clock end? Uh, how, how should we think about that both as an employer and as an employee? How do you distinguish between work and leisure uh, during the day? Yeah, I think it certainly has morphed over, you know, certainly over time where we all have colleagues and and ourselves where you're pushing out work, you know, um, you know, late into the night, early in the morning in order to to keep the ball rolling. I think what we've seen, and I think why I put it out there is, is certainly a future trend and something we have to solve for. It really is more about the employees that are either part-time, flexible, gig economy, um, and it tethers back to compensation, right? And um, how are you going to be able to to tether it back to to compliance? And uh, when do you start? When do you stop? Um, That's really the the population I was referencing, not so much full-time, you know, exempt uh, employees. And what do we do about the screaming kid? You said right now we're empathetic for it, but um, if there's a business meeting or supposed to be an important meeting and that kid is running around in the background and either bothering the rest of the group or interfering with the parent on the call, how, what is the role for the company to say, you know what, you've got to cut that stuff out, or can they? Is it even legal to? Like, what, is, what, what, what can HR do to say, you know, you, you, you can't be a parent and a, an employee at the same time? Yeah, I think that that book, that chapter is certainly um, being written um, as we speak. And I think, you know, when we look back and it's post-pandemic and childcare, um, just like pre-pandemic, right? Your your expectation as an employer, if you're onboarding a new individual, they're going to have their childcare handled so they can perform their job that they're hired to do. I do feel 
the pendulum will swing back. I think it's going to be a long time as, as um, you know, there's so many variables that, um, you know, an employee needs to, to tackle. Um, but I do see it swinging back over time and, and bringing more of that um, professionalism um, that you see in the office back home. Um, but it won't be solved in, until there's a vaccine, until all of the, the other, you know, uh, challenges have, um, have been solved. Nick, when you hear some of those comments, what, uh, what are your reflections on what Heidi's saying? I, I, I think we're totally aligned. Um, you know, what, what seems amazing to me is there's such a strong consensus now about you do need to be in the office. I mean, there are a few firms, or a few outlaw firms like Quora has said, you know, we're going to be a virtual company. The CEO, he, may, he put out, in fact, on Quora said, look, I'm going to come in the office one day a month. Uh, we're selling off our buildings. But pretty much everyone I speak to is the same story. It's exactly as Heidi said. You know, you do need face-to-face time, particularly as Heidi said, for new, for new joiners. In fact, interestingly, Mark Zuckerberg made a comment about, look, in the long run, we're going to support working from home from Facebook, which all companies have said. But when you read all these statements, they're very clear that they don't mean working from home typically full time. They mean like two or three days a week. And he also mentioned that the new hires that expected to be in the office. So, you know, the, the other thought I had is, by the way, there's something's coming out very strongly in our data is actually the, the office is not ended at all. So we surveyed firms and asked them how much office space they wanted. On average, the net it, it changed post pandemic was about flat. So there's less person days in the office because there's more working from home. But firms report that they needed more space per person there. You know, some of this social distancing were carrying over. So the total square footage of office is about flat. But skyscrapers are like cursed buildings. So what firms told us in droves is skyscrapers, things like Salesforce Tower in San Francisco, are a nightmare because you can't get people to the front door because you can't get them on mass transit without, you know, be, without being crowded. And then how do you get them from the front door up to, you know, floor 30 because of elevators? So there's an enormous <laughs> rushing sound of firms desperately trying to get out of leases and skyscrapers and those kind of high-rise buildings and into uh, more like office parks, in fact, a lot of high-tech is well set up, universities, kind of offices where you can mostly drive to, have only two or three stories so you can take the stairs, etc. So that's one other huge element. And that, again, is a bit of a push of people out from the center of cities into the suburbs. To me, it might be just a little bit temporary. I mean, for example, after 9-11, um, Sears Tower in Chicago, the largest building in the U.S. at the time, I had a very difficult time renting out its top 20 floors or whatever. Um, but, you know, two years out, you know, Sears Tower, again, was fully rented. Um, do you think that once the vaccine is out that these issues related to social distancing will go away? I mean, what WeWorks was trying to do was how about we give a very flexible office space with high density? And if that, that actually that latter clause seems like incompatible with COVID. Um, but we were moving towards a, a higher density, more flexible work plan, a workspace plan. Do you think that once COVID is resolved that we will have, um, you know, a, an office where you'll, you'll be sharing space with other, you know, coworkers because you're only there, you know, two, three days a week, and every office is now up for grabs each day uh, with different computers to log into and phones to be uh, amended? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot there. So the first thing is, I think social distancing, like working from home, 
is not going to remain as extreme as it is now, but it's not going away either. So just to make the analogy to 9-11, if you look at flights, airline traffic in the U.S., it took three years to recover back to the level. Before 9-11, it was on an upward trend, so it never really fully recovered. Uh, you know, I've actually been working with a lot of commercial real estate companies, and one of them told me their firm, three years after 9-11, was still struggling. They basically had to cut rents on uh, high-profile buildings in you know, big cities because of the scare. And COVID is far more impactful. On surveys, we've asked people, would you feel comfortable post-COVID going back to the same pre-COVID density? And you know, something like 73% of people say no. When you ask them why, it's a combination of nervousness about the vaccine not working or getting reinfected or other diseases or just, you know, the, you know, the fact is so many of us have seen those scare, scary sneeze videos where you see particles flying everywhere. So I, I personally, and our survey evidence is consistent with this, do not think we'll go back to the same density we did before. So I think there's going to be a permanent shift. And you're right. You know, the office of the future, by the way, is going to be somewhat different. It will be slightly more spacious. But if we're in three days a week, that space will be set up for more collaboration. So I think long rows of cubicles, if you're only in the office three days a week, when you need to kind of sit alone and work, you're going to do that at home. So it will be reconfigured. Um, but I, yeah, I don't think much of working from home, social distancing is, you know, certainly in the near term, the next three to five years is ever going to completely go away either, actually. Okay. With that, we're going to pivot once again. Um, our, new, our next segment uh, relates to deliberative democracy and uh, policymaking. Uh, our first speaker is James Fishkin, who is the James M. Peck Chair in International Communications at Stanford. Um, he has written a, a book entitled Democracy, When the People Are Thinking, Revitalizing Our Politics Through Public Deliberation. Jim, why don't you go ahead? Well, my interest is what I call deliberative democracy. Democracy, when the people are thinking, when they're weighing the competing arguments for what ought to be done. Now, you might say, isn't that the democracy we have now? But uh, most people, most of the time, uh, are not effectively motivated to become informed about the competing arguments at play on uh, issues we are rationally ignorant, as Anthony Downs coined years ago. If I have one vote in millions, why should I pay a lot of attention to the complexities? I may have a general idea and impressions of sound bites and headlines, which are mostly what's reflected in conventional public opinion polls. But in addition, if I do, if I am interested in politics or policy, I'll tend to talk to people like myself. I'll tend to tune in to congenial news sources. I will uh, be in my own uh, filter bubble where the algorithms uh, of social media will, uh, companies will give me the kind of information that I find congenial, but I may never have any idea about the arguments on the other side. So some years ago, I developed what I call deliberative polling, where we take uh, random samples of a population, we bring them together either online or face-to-face, to discuss in depth, uh, and the discussions uh, even online are with video-based discussions in small groups. So 300, 400, 500, 700 people uh, in a treatment group. We often have um, control groups who do not deliberate pre-post control groups. And we can see what the people would really think under good conditions, balanced and vetted briefing materials, video versions of the briefing materials for people who um, who may not be so literate, uh, opportunities to question competing experts who represent different points of view on the issue. Um, 
And uh, we did this, uh, we've done this 110 times in 30 countries as a direct input for policymaking. We helped desegregate the uh, Roma-only schools in Bulgaria. We helped Japan with its decisions on a national basis about uh, deciding not to uh, uh, privatize the pension system, but deciding what its energy policies would be post-Fukushima. We've uh, brought uh, wind power to Texas, where when we started uh, back in 1996, Texas was last in wind power, but uh, people were willing to pay a little bit more in their monthly bills for to support uh, uh, renewable energy. And Texas is now the world is now the leader in the United States. Number one went from number 50 to number one in uh, wind power. We did a project called America in One Room um, in, a year ago in September, um, and that's the project that Larry uh, referred to in his intro. That was a national deliberative poll. NORC at the University of Chicago recruited a sample of some 500 people and a control group of 800 who deliberated about the big issues facing the country um, and on specific policy proposals uh, that were current in the campaign. And there were massive changes of opinion that were very striking, so much so that, well, not only uh, the New York Times was our partner and in that they actually published the photos of all 526 participants uh, um, in the paper. So lots of people uh, study national random samples, but nobody's ever seen one, but you could see them in the New York Times. And the changes of opinion on the highly polarized issues were very striking. That is, for example, on immigration, the Republicans who wanted to send the undocumented immigrants back uh, uh, before deliberation, 80% wanted to, and after deliberation, only 40% wanted to. That's a drop of 40 points. Some of the most ambitious and progressive uh, proposals favored by the Democrats also dropped as much as 40 points with deliberation. Um, so there were very big changes uh, in fact, we've now written a paper, which we just presented at the APSA, uh, about how uh, deliberation seems to be an antidote to extreme partisan polarization. Um, and we, that confirms what we saw in Bulgaria and in Northern Ireland as well. Um, so I think that what our democracy lacks is deliberation, where we actually talk to each other in a, under conditions uh, mutual respect and civility with evidence-based arguments. And when we do that, people eventually open up. So we're also dealing with how to scale deliberation and what its long-term effects might be. So the article that Larry referred to uh, was actually the follow-up a year later, just before the election. The Times had us follow up with our sample and the control group. And they published, uh, and they published some of the photos and some interviews, but the experiment, to our amazement, had dramatic effects on voting intention a year later. That is, the deliberators uh, paid a lot more attention to the campaign, they said, they, than did the control group. They were much more concerned about the COVID, uh, the government's response to COVID. They thought it was much uh, worse than did the control group, and um, both on economics and in public health and overall. And they... Uh, uh, dramatically supported the uh, Biden ticket rather than the Trump ticket. Um, and uh, the regressions show that, you know, that uh, the reason, and that's a controlled experiment. 
So we've been looking at that every possible way, and the Times questioned us in every possible way before they published it. We're writing a paper about that now. But what that means is deliberation a year ago uh, for a weekend uh, had an effect on the way people dealt with a the campaign. They became more engaged citizens, and a year later it had a big effect on their voting intention. Uh, I mean, if you look at the times, the result is really big. Um, uh, 39% Trump, 57% for Biden, as opposed to 40% Trump, 44% in the control group. So obviously that's not what's going to happen, but that is the effect of the experiment, in effect, on the, um, on the way people thought about the issues. So we're also uh, dealing with uh, ways of scaling deliberation as a cure for our um, ailing democracy um, and uh, bringing it into the schools. We have, we're using technology to automate the uh, video-based discussions uh, with a, an engineering team here at Stanford, and it works great, and we're looking for all kinds of applications, and we're going to uh, soon be going into the field to apply that in Canada, and then we're going to bring, bring that back to the United States. So the conclusion is Instead of what most of my political science colleagues think, which is that, or many of them, that the public is incapable of governing itself and it's just a matter of who can successfully mobilize and manipulate, I think, given a chance, the people are very smart and we need to uh, revise and upgrade our democratic tools and methods and institutions to get a voice of the people uh, that's thoughtful and representative so that we can make it an input to policy, uh, not to replace our current democratic institutions, but rather to supplement with what democracy is supposed to be about from the very beginning. It's about the will of the people. And instead of it being strangled by all the methods of Madison Avenue and worse, go back to the basic idea that Madison had of um, deliberation, but he thought only the representatives or elites were gonna be capable of it. And what we found is the public, ordinary people in aggregate are pretty smart if you give them a chance and effectively motivate to talk to each other. So that's, that's my uh, research program, happy to discuss. Okay, um, let's move on to our second speaker in the segment and then we'll go back to you in Q&A. Uh, Roy Stewart uh, is currently a senior fellow at Yale University's Jackson Institute for Global Affairs. He's going to discuss um, populism as well as uh, failures in public policy. Go ahead, Roy. Well, thank you, Larry. Um, first of all, um, as a working politician and somebody who's spent nearly 10 years in various roles in government, including as a cabinet minister, right, I feel very, very strong sympathy for the last speaker. And I think we massively underestimate the power of this form of citizens' deliberation. It had an incredibly powerful impact for example, in Ireland over the abortion debate. And I tried very hard to use it as a method of engaging with the Brexit discussion in Britain. Um, however, I also learned along the way there are very, very considerable obstacles to really giving authority to these kinds of deliberative assemblies. In other words, there are very, very strong reasons why particularly politicians and parliaments are very reluctant to give these types of forums real authority. So obviously in the case of the Brexit debate, it was impossible to convince anyone in Parliament to allow a Citizens' Assembly to meet on the subject of Brexit. 
let alone commit to implementing any of its decisions. Which brings me to my main point, which is that while we have been talking for the last hour and a half very uh, in great detail about coronavirus and about changes to pattern of work, we've forgotten what uh, we were talking about probably most of all a year ago, and of course what matters a great deal in the election that is about to come which is what is happening to our politics, and in particular this phenomenon called populism. Now, we can get into a lot of jargon about what populism is and what populism isn't, but broadly speaking, populism is an attempt to mobilize, in inverted commas, the people against the establishment or the elite, and to claim that there is a real people who have moral force and that the political leader speaks for those people and takes down the elite on that basis. It's a very interesting phenomenon because it has been supercharged by social media. So although it existed in various forms, famously in the United States in the 1890s, it is now genuinely an extraordinary global phenomenon. There are so many differences between the types of democratic system that we see in India, uh, in Hungary, in the United States, in Britain, and in Turkey, but it is remarkable how in every single one of those situations, a very similar form of politics is emerging. The challenge that we face in dealing with it, and, and the reason we need to deal with it, I'm going to come on to a second, but essentially the reason we need to deal with it is that populist leaders are extremely unlikely generally to result in stable, predictable, and competent governments. And I'll try to speculate on why that's the case in a second. But responding to that is very, very difficult because whereas the populist movements in the late 19th century, early 20th century happened at a time when governments were spending about 10% of their gross domestic product in, uh, in terms of provision of services and therefore had a huge capacity to increase the amount they were providing to their people as well as expand suffrage, give votes to women, uh, deliver civil rights to groups that hadn't had them before, those possibilities are no longer open to governments in almost all uh, states. The states are already probably spending close to as much as they can in terms of the willingness of their population to pay taxes. They're generally expanding their suffrage about as far as they can. So it's very difficult for them to have tricks up their sleeve in the way that people had uh, in the 30s and 40s to suddenly provide things for citizens that were not there before. The consequences uh, for business is particularly difficult. Uh, you'll feel that in terms of unpredictability. You'll feel that uh, in terms of a less empirical basis. You'll feel it also uh, in terms of COVID response. I don't think it's a coincidence that uh, Donald Trump, Boris Johnson, Narendra Modi struggle with their COVID responses. It's because the style of politics that they are accustomed to, the way they win elections, the way they campaign is not based on a very traditional, technocratic, highly analytical approach. In fact, their instinct is to be deeply suspicious of expertise and elites, and that puts them in a difficult position. I'm going to conclude because we've only got six minutes here, but let me conclude with a final hand grenade to the room, which is to say, when we think about the crisis in politics, understand that it isn't only populism that you need to worry about that actually politicians in general are increasingly incentivized not to focus on policy. 
They're incentivized to focus on campaigning, on party loyalty, on increasing their uh, visibility with the public and the media. But that the detailed, boring work of trying to look at evidence and bring policy forward is extremely risky for working politicians and delivers very little benefit. And in fact, the extraordinary success of Boris Johnson, who has been you know, a manifestly incompetent and absent-minded administrator for, uh, since he was mayor of London, uh, is a real example of why politicians today don't feel that that matters. And I'm going to finish on that because I think we began with COVID, we went through deliberative democracy, and both of these things relate very, very closely to what I see as the disease at the heart of our politics. Thank you. Great. Um, let me start out with uh, making a distinguishing difference between deliberative democracy and participatory democracy. Um, and Jim, if I get this thing wrong, let me know. But my question is going to be for Rory. Um, participatory democracy means that you know, we're asking the people to actually vote on policy, uh, as it distinguishes it from discuss and, and make policy a little bit. Um, in Brexit, they asked the, um, the British people uh, in or out a very simple question in many ways, but um, only offering two choices. Um, and then they, they chose um, to the shock of the elite and I guess maybe even to parliament. Um, do we want uh, greater participation among the people in the democratic process? Or do, you, do we want to continue using representative government to make the decisions on behalf of the people who may not be uh, educated or as up to speed on the issues? Well, I want to go first and then uh, give it to uh, Jim. Yeah, the answer to that, Larry, is that the great advantage of what I'm calling a citizen's assembly or what uh, the professor is calling deliberative democracy is it shares the features of both systems. It shares some of the features of a direct democracy insofar as the citizens involved are randomly selected from the public as a whole. They're a, they're a sample, representative sample of the public. They're not professional politicians. But like uh, the theory of a parliament, they're given time to discuss things in detail. So the advantage of a citizens' assembly on Brexit would have been once the decision to leave had been made, they could have focused on what type of future deal they wanted with the European Union. They could have explored whether they wanted a customs union or a single market. They could have explored how much immigration mattered to them as opposed to farming policy. They could have done this in public. They could have done this over a number of days or even weeks. And they could have presented those uh, conclusions. And if they had done it in a way that was sufficiently open and sufficiently legitimate, I think it could have had a real political impact. It, of course, wouldn't have had a constitutional impact. Parliament would still have had to sign up to this. But as Ireland showed, particularly over the issue of abortion, if it's constructed correctly, these kind of mechanisms can have a real impact. The problem is that in the United States and in Britain, people would be very, very reluctant to let citizens do this, or at least if they let them do it, very reluctant to pay any attention to their conclusions. Jim, what do you make of that? Well, first of all, uh, it's very nice to meet uh, Rory Stewart on, in this, and I agree with uh, pretty much everything that he said. The difference, uh, think of the difference in scale. I mean, I live in California, and we have pretty big referendums or initiatives all the time, and they're just uh, battles by soundbite and mobilization, um, and there's a lot of misleading information, and most people don't have much reason to pay attention to the details. And so... It's another form of soundbite democracy. Uh, 
But if people, if you've got, instead of one vote in millions, you've got one voice in a random sample of three or four or 500, uh, and you've gathered together for uh, several days or a weekend, either on Zoom or in person, to deliberate in depth and become informed and get your questions answered, um, uh, you feel empowered and you have every reason to pay attention and you come to an informed judgment. Uh, and so we have done this actually before uh, uh, elections, even the 19, what is it, uh, the, the, uh, the British general election that brought Tony Blair to power, we did it with Channel 4. We did it uh, before the Australian referendum on the Republic uh, on, with national television as well. Uh, and got very interesting results because we not only revealed what people thought, but why they preferred one alternative to another. Um, and in, believe it or not, in Mongolia, it's actually required by law before they can change the constitution. And the results went to parliament and they did change the constitution based upon a national deliberative poll. And so, so these things can be done, uh, and the point is they should be done with, uh, with scientific rigor to be representative and balanced and thoughtful and transparent. But uh, they, they provide a different voice than just, you know, <laughs> in California, when the uh, initiative refer referendum and recall were fostered by the progressives in 1911, they thought it would bring power to the people which it did in a way, but they thought it would bring power to the people thoughtfully. Uh, that is, the people would really uh, think about their responsibility, but instead it's turned into this uh, kind of um, uh, electioneering soundbite campaign with millions of dollars having to be raised for the signature collections and the money. We tried, we hoped to do it uh, in, uh, before in the UK uh, on the Brexit issue when it was a live issue, but we never we never got the chance. We actually recently have a series of deliberative polls that we're doing with the British, uh, with uh, Sir John Curtis and Nat Sen on the post-Brexit transition. But uh, the... Larry, it's, it's the, Rory. I'm the, very sorry. I got cut off. Oh, no problem. You're back. Yeah. So, so we've been working in Britain on Brexit, but the, the decision was made. So it's just a matter of the, the challenges facing the future, which are considerable, but... Uh, not clearly uh, defined yet because we don't even know whether the British will have a deal or not, uh, um, but they are leaving. So uh, they have left the EU, let me uh, say that. So, so I agree with, with what Rory Stewart uh, uh, said uh, completely. So you have to distinguish the, the large numbers who participate from how they participate and do they participate in the thoughtful way where they think they can uh, uh, when they have, they are effectively empowered to think through the issues in depth, uh, or do they just um, uh, show up and vote? Uh, so uh, participatory democracy and deliberative democracy overlap on the issue of inclusion, but the method of inclusion is different. Um, so both have merits. I mean, participation is a separable, separable value. From, um, let, me, let me interrupt you for a second and ask a question to Rory about um, you called it the evidence-based investigation in, in government and decision-making, and you mentioned that politicians in general aren't very active in ascertaining the truth, and it's very risky for them. Um, I was thinking about it in the context of how the U.S. government currently operates. Um, there's this very 
large bureaucracy who actually get into the weeds, who make pop. Congress seems to make very broad uh, laws. Uh, the bureaucracy is uh, responsible for coming up with rules and you know methods of enforcing these laws. Congress may from time to time evaluate the results, um, it, you know, cross-examine the bureaucrats, and the populist leaders often run against the bureaucracy and say that these experts and these bureaucrats who don't, you know, are doing the wrong thing. How do you, how do you when we add the word bureaucrats into this process, uh, how does that affect um, the political calculus and the um, and the, the view of the public as to how rules are implemented? Well, so Larry, you've put your finger on what makes politics so bizarre, because effectively those bureaucrats are the civil servants of the governor or the president yeah. when they're elected. So it would be like a CEO running against the key senior employees of their own company shortly before they take over, then finding themselves taking over and being unable to get rid of most of those people and then managing them in an extremely antagonistic fashion. But at the same time, of course, they're not really interested generally in what the bureaucrats, which is simply the phrase for the permanent civil servants, are actually doing in detail. A lot of it is to quote the professor, simply sound bites. It's a lot of complaint about bureaucracy, but it's not a very detailed attempt from any of these political leaders to try to understand exactly what it is that's going wrong and try to fix it in any coherent long-term fashion because they simply don't have the, the time, the patience, or the incentives to really understand what games their civil servants are playing or why the system is not operating properly and to reform those things involves reforming the way that people are recruited, the way that they're trained, the way that they're promoted. And these are changes which take, you know, 10, 20 years to bring through a civil service or government system. And of course, the politicians are simply not interested in things that happen over their timeline. So what you actually have is the worst of all worlds. You have an extraordinary amount of abuse thrown at the bureaucrats. But when the politicians come in, it's extremely rare to see them actually doing anything thoughtful or constructive in terms of reforming the bureaucracy. Uh, it, this, is, this is a follow-up on that. Um, you know, the Brits do it different than the Americans. Um, first of all, the, the member of parliament, it, for example, where you, you're a minister of the prisons, so you'd be both a member of parliament and you would be in the executive branch effectively trying to figure out how to manage that process. Um, and I actually don't know, is, if, is a member of the opposition also uh, there as well in that process? Because here yeah. in the United States, no, you, you no, would never no, have a member the of the opposition involved in any bureaucratic interest. The only the elected government. So I was a conservative, our government was elected, and so I started as a member of parliament, and then, as you say, I was able to become minister and then eventually a cabinet minister. Um, but in effect, the problems that we face are not very different from the kind of problems that you face in the United States, which is that, generally speaking, uh, certainly your presidents and governors and mayors, if not the members of their cabinet, are never specialists. And the lack of knowledge they have dealing with incredibly complex issues beggars belief. Now, of course, many people on this call will feel, well, you know, I've got some experience in the world, and if you're feeling self-confidence about yourself, yeah, I can do healthcare policy, I can do education policy, I can do defense, I can do North Korea. But the truth of the matter is that 
actually, if you were honest, you are completely out of your depth in relation to almost all these things. You are operating off um, a very, very high degree, if you wanted to get to the truth, a very high degree of instinct, intuition, memories from previous work. And it may be that what you did before you became a politician is not remotely relevant to the question of what your policy should be towards North Korea or where exactly you think the Saudi regime is going. So that makes you deeply, deeply dependent on the bureaucrats. But worse than that, actually what happens is it incentivizes you not to do your job at all. It incentivizes you to focus on making bold statements in the media, focusing on managing your party, focusing on winning campaigns, because actually you're completely overwhelmed by the complexity of what you have to face in government. And you hardly get going before you're into the next election. And what do you do if you're the executive and the bureaucracy disagrees with you and tries to undermine your policies? Um, I imagine that that it was a problem for Thatcher, it was a problem for Reagan, it was a problem for Trump. So that's inevitable, Larry, in any system. And so that's actually true. Yep. So if you look at Donald Trump's Syria policy, he sends out, he campaigns on a mandate to get out of these wars. He sends a tweet saying he's getting out of Syria and the military go berserk. General Mattis resigns. And then the U.S. military does all it can to try not to implement the will of the president. They start trying to play games with numbers, sending in troops on rotation, pretending they're under a thousand when they aren't, and hoping he's going to think about something else. The same was true with Mr. Thatcher. Her bureaucracy was completely against her economic reforms, against her trade union reforms, against her invasion of the Falkland Islands. So, and there are very, very common features of this, which is. As soon as you challenge the bureaucracy, you face resignations, you face leaks saying you don't know what you're doing. And generally, politicians back down. The classic example of this is Obama in relation to the Afghan search. He clearly felt, with some justification, that the war in Afghanistan was unwinnable and that a search was a very bad idea. But the military in that case, which is that part of the bureaucracy, responded by leaking General McChrystal's commander's assessment to the Wall Street Journal that's putting the president in a situation that he had no choice other than to endorse the military's position. It takes a very, very high degree of self-confidence and conviction on the part of the politician to challenge, for example, a general with medals all over his chest who served three tours on the ground in Iraq and Afghanistan. And the same is true in health policy, education policy, and whatnot. Jim, when you hear Rory describe um, the the problems that a professional um, politician faces in understanding um, the complexities on the ground of a, a particular issue relative to the bureaucrat. And now we put together a panel of 300 um, non-professionals who have jobs, who are given very broad educations on the subject. Why do we want to trust those people's decisions more than the professional politician or just not give it over to the bureaucrats and the experts to make the decisions for us? Well, the kind of question that we pose in a deliberative poll is a question of collective political will. Do we generally want to go in this direction or that direction? What are the trade-offs? We want to integrate the schools in Bulgaria. Do we, do we want to invest, have a pension system that uh, requires the individual uh, Japanese to, uh, to shoulder the risk but maybe of investing their own pensions but maybe getting the benefits? Do the people want that? What kind of health care system do we want? The trade-offs with that. If you can I, do the work to identify the basic trade-offs beforehand, 
and see which ones get buy-in from the public, the details of implementation go to what you've been calling the bureaucrats, but also provides an opportunity for, uh, for leadership uh, by, uh, by political leaders. But it's not that we make technocrats of the people, but we make citizens of the people who can weigh the competing arguments. This can actually give cover to the uh, decision makers to make a difficult decision. Uh, when President Moon came into office in South Korea, he had a generally anti-nuclear stance, but he had two nuclear reactors, Shingori 5 and 6, that were partially constructed. And uh, if he didn't bring them online, the uh, utility prices would go up and uh, they would have to import a lot of fossil fuels. But uh, uh, if, uh, if, if he, uh, so there were trade-offs as to whether they would complete them or not. And so he commissioned a deliberative poll with our colleagues there, uh, and um, uh, they, uh, and he turned the decision, actually the final decision, over to them. And to everyone's surprise, the Korean South Korean public in microcosm, it was a very good project, decided to um, to continue uh, the construction, and that's what they did. So it was a way of sharing the responsibility for a contested choice. It wasn't that the people understood nuclear power better than the bureaucrats. It was that they could they could weigh the competing arguments uh, with respect to the risks and benefits and the and the choices in a uh, in a uh, okay. so 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 that okay Jim Jim this is Rick let me let me just jump in there with 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 one question this is I mean this is fascinating research as you as you know I think and and this is very persuasive that uh, deliberation makes people more reasonable and that their judgments are more considered but what I'm wondering is that, well there are two issues one is are there certain areas that you think are particularly ripe for deliberative, uh, this deliberative process and other areas where you would not want the government to turn responsibility over to the citizens? That's one question. And let me give you a second question is, if this process were to be scaled and were to become more widespread, is there any worry that it might become corrupted in some ways in the same way our politics has become corrupted? Well, on the, on the first question, what, are the, uh, what is the range of questions? We've done hot questions and cool questions, complex questions um, and um, uh, questions that boil down to one question as in a referendum. Uh, so it, uh, uh, advising the public. So uh, we don't do questions where in conflict situations where somebody might get blown up, uh, 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 but... Uh, we don't do, uh, uh, and we don't ask the public purely technical questions. You have to be able to, to identify the value-laden goals that are at issue in conflict in the trade-offs, and that's what you want out of the people. That's what the collective political will is about. So we've even done it in sub-Saharan Africa, in Uganda, Ghana, Senegal, Malawi, Tanzania. All of those projects are on our website uh, very successfully. So it's so the populations don't even have to be very well educated if you do the work to boil the questions down and uh, have video versions of the briefing materials uh, rather than written versions. Uh, and the uh, Ghanaians, for example, uh, which one of my students did a comparison of the reasoning in all the small groups between the Ghanaian uh, 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 citizens and the citizens of California and a California-wide project we did and the Ghanaians did just as well in terms of 
offering sophisticated arguments or offering arguments that had justifications and considering the trade-offs. So people around the world can do this. Now, could it be uh, manipulated or captured? Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, you somebody could uh, manipulate or capture it. That's why, uh, even though it may sound a little bit bizarre, uh, Mongolia set in place in the law on deliberative polling, which is translated in the back of my book, a whole bunch of requirements for how in the future deliberative polls had to be conducted and the samples from the, the Census Bureau and the, uh, the advisory committee that had to be bipartisan that oversaw it and the scientific committee, all this stuff, so that they tried to institutionalize it, both for local government and for con the constitutional amendment process. So we all know that it's possible to design nonpartisan institutions to do good things, but it's also possible to have those institutions completely subverted uh, by people of, of ill will. So, uh, but that's not, that doesn't mean deliberative democracy is more susceptible than other institutions. Uh, conventional competitive democracy is susceptible to being subverted, as we all know. Look at the pattern of competitive authoritarianism that is. Okay, uh, let me, Jim, uh, let me, let me, this is, this is, this is a plug alert. Um, what's your website? You refer to your website, information that's on your website. What's the website? Yes. Uh, center, just Google Center for Deliberative Democracy, or it's cdd.stanford.edu, and you, you, you have projects all over the world. It's no www for something, some okay. reason or other. Let me change it. Let me just jump in for a second. Um, you know, we, we live in a time of COVID, and so, Lauren Myers, if you're still uh, available and listening, I want to ask you a question. Um, you've heard from... Fishkin and, and Roy Stewart about um, failures in the democratic process to make uh, judgments and benefits potentially of using citizens. When you think of COVID, um, the complexities for our society, the complexities for behavioral changes, um, and how to uh, deal with it, how do you think um, how do you think COVID policy could be done better uh, to engage both the public? Uh, and politicians and the bureaucracy to make good uh, medical decisions? Um, okay, I am still on. <laughs> That's a challenging one, and, and these, uh, the idea of um, deliberative democracy is, is new to me, but what, what, I'm, what I'm gleaning from the conversation is that that's, deliberative democracy is more about trying to understand what the people want. And I think that what we're and, and only after we have enough information and situational awareness that we can fully communicate what the options are and benefits to to the people. And I think you know we're the challenge that we have seen in the United States and elsewhere is just um, uh, a failure to get the right expertise in the room together so that we can understand what the situation is and what the consequences of different actions are. And so, you know, I've been in many conversations along since the beginning of COVID of, you know, where's the Manhattan Project for COVID? You know, they're very early on, I want to say I was on an email list with maybe a half dozen or so other modelers from around the world. Um, we got a couple of back-to-back -back requests from the White House Coronavirus Task Force to do some 24 hours to do some analysis and then give the results. And if we could give the results in time, we could impact policy and then never heard from them again. And... Um, Sort of, you know, so there's a sense that there was some look at science for a second, but then, you know, well, we've seen what's happened since then. And so 
I think, um, I don't think this is what the other speakers were talking about, but I think there's really a need to do a couple of things. One is that we just need a much more robust uh, public health infrastructure, you know, from, from the top to the bottom. And that's one of the... And I guess what I mean, another the, aspect is, is that, you know, this disease affects different people in different ways. And so mm-hmm. um, we're asking, for example, maybe the young to sacrifice for the benefit of the old. Um, and it's of a much greater consequence you know, to people that are going to get sick and die than to people who, who won't be affected. And, and the challenges for public policy is, is how to weigh those interests. Um, do you, you know, as, a, as one of the experts, you know, how do you try to persuade public policy people on these sort of issues? And at the same time, like who should make the decisions related to the analysis that you provide? So, Can I, I don't very quickly persuade... just to add a politicians yeah. to be honest. I think it's also worth bearing in mind that often in my experience so this is Rory coming in it's remarkable how younger people uh, will actually um, show remarkable altruism or interest in the outcomes for older people. In fact one of the great advantages of these kind of deliberative models where citizens sit together is that it develops a form of fellow sympathy. What you oddly don't have is a sort of zero-sum game. It's remarkable how often these deliberative processes actually seem to lead to compromise and common understanding. And my instinct would be that had we done this on COVID, you wouldn't have had a situation in which young people would just be like, well, this doesn't matter to me. In fact, what it would develop is a more uh, nuanced understanding of people's obligations towards the more vulnerable. Okay, and for me. Yeah, and I, I don't remember exactly how you asked it, but I think, you know, one thing is that we, I really don't try to persuade policymakers or decision makers to do anything. We really try to pr- do our best to bring kind of data and science to the table. So to do those analyses that kind of help them understand the consequences of different decisions, different policies, you know, what we understand about the, the, um, uh, the virus, you know, as of, as of today. And, you know, there's, and it's really complex, right? There's all this feedback, there's all these nonlinearities. And, and so it's, it's not, they're not simple questions of, you know, do you want to go to school or do you want to save lives, right? It's really, it's, it's really complicated. And so I think there, it sounds like there would be a real use for the, these sort of deliberative activities, but I think there's also like a desperate need just to bring um, experts from all different domains, you know, not just the epidemiologists, but the economists, the behavioral scientists, the people who have expertise in education all to the same table um, and guiding the policymakers. And we really have not had that. And, and again, going back to a, a really robust public health system that can actually um, deploy what we think are the best, the best measures, the best policies, best resources. I mean, it's just, you know, it's, it's so, um, it's so shocking, I think to everyone that we have yet to have a decent, testing contact tracing isolation program in the United States, right, which could really go a long way, particularly when we get to the point in communities that we've brought the virus down to low levels. But we're, we're so far from that still to this day. Um, Larry, can I just right. say, Rory, again, um, the I'm other thing with guess in this debate when we talk about experts is the centrality of values, moral values, because a lot of the central questions that we had to answer with COVID were not just about epidemiology or education policy. They were about moral obligation. Is it, for example, justifiable to allow people to die today that we could save in order to save more people 
in the future. So in the UK, they modeled that if they went for a particular model, 300,000 people would die this year, but it would stop 400,000 people dying over the winter. Or is it justifiable to sacrifice the old in order to provide economic opportunities for the young? These are not things that any expert can answer. These are questions of ethics, morality, social judgment. And this is one of the sad things about modern politics, that we're not honest enough about the fact that these type of decisions can only be made by citizens and politicians as a whole. They're not things that you can delegate out to some professor. All right, with that, this is um, a part of the show where, um, after being completely depressed, we try to find notes of optimism. Um, and I'm going to go to each speaker and ask them uh, what they're optimistic about, not so much after this call, but, you know, why we should be optimistic in general about our society and in our future. Um, I'm going to start in chronological order. Lauren, what are you optimistic about? <laughs> I didn't remember this was part of the assignment. Um, <laughs> I, I didn't. I forgot to remind you. Um, okay. I'm, you want me to come back to you? I'm, no, no, it's okay. I'm, I'm, I'm very enthusiastic about kind of the ramping up of access to testing as a way to make uh, uh, going to school and going to work um, safer and, you know, enabling us to catch virus earlier. So that seems to be kind of on the, on the horizon and already happening. Um, and I'm also... Um, Oh, I had something else, but uh, it escaped me. I guess I'll leave it at that. If come back to me, maybe I'll remember what it was. All right. You just jump in when you're ready. Uh, Dr. Andrew Levine, Andy, what are you optimistic about? You know, I'm, I'm optimistic that this pandemic, like all pandemics, will end. Um, I'm, I'm optimistic that a lot of the persistent symptoms people are experiencing will also end. I, you know, this is a time of um, extreme stress for a variety of reasons. Um, who knows, maybe after Tuesday, some people's symptoms will be alleviated to some extent. I'm sure some of mine will. Um, but I'm optimistic that this will end. And, you know, with um, with folks, you know, my colleagues on the call here, um, you know, working behind the scenes, I, I'm confident that, uh, you know, science uh, and good public policy will prevail and that will make it through these difficult times. Great. Heidi Gray, what are you optimistic about? Yeah, I think, um, you know, we've been able to jettison uh, so many inefficient legacy ways that we used to work virtually overnight. Um, and I think right now we have this incredible, unique opportunity to make the workplace better than how we found it pre, pre-pandemic. And we have the ability to write new rules on what it looks like and um, super bullish about that. Okay, Nick Bloom. I, I think I get the <laughs> the easiest job here. I mean, the working from home movement is uh, is like genuinely very positive. I mean, so there's two obvious things. Is one is you know who wouldn't want to get to work from home for two days a week? Uh, you know that that's going to be a huge shift for the half of the population that can. That's like a seems to me like an obvious upside. And then the other thing is. Uh, you know, the uh, pushback on the affordability crisis. Living out in the Bay Area in London, this was just, like, chronic. No one could afford to live in these big cities. And uh, working from home is going to shift a lot of people out and make it cheaper for the rest of us. Jim, Jim Fishkin. Well, I'm optimistic about deliberative democracy because uh, we're able to do it much more cheaply in a virtual environment. People are getting used to Zoom meetings with hundreds of people, but with uh, small groups of a dozen and breaking up 
the 600 people into small groups and deliberating. And politicians all over the world are learning that there are political benefits in listening to the people to get public buy-in to the solution of difficult problems. The articulation of why people might agree to sacrifice or coordinate on a collection action, collective action problem like the problems we face with uh, COVID. COVID's going to depend upon getting the public to buy in to the vaccine, but to the social distancing and to uh, rigorous um, use of masks with a mandate and all kinds of changes in their way of life. The public has to buy into those things. So those things, so you have to find out what the public's willing to buy into for what reasons and then communicate that and spread it. So I think uh, my own work has a bright future, but I'm still heartbroken by all the deprivation I, I see whenever I turn on the TV. That is when I'm not watching the election. <laughs> Roy Stewart, what are you optimistic about? So notwithstanding the fact that populists have huge advantage uh, electorally and that most times uh, everything else being equal without an economic crisis, without a COVID crisis, the populists have advantages partly because they can lie, partly because they have a style of campaigning that works with contemporary social media very powerfully. Despite all of that, I'm optimistic for two things. Firstly, I think there are constitutional changes we can introduce and deliberative democracy, the more use of it, is one of those things. And I think better devolution is another and rethinking the way that uh, party leaders is elected is another. But I also think that in terms of leadership, Emmanuel Macron in France represents a very striking example of how an independent voice from the center ground can win in a polarized system and win by not becoming bland, not by becoming boring, but using a lot of the methodology of populism, a lot of its stridency, a lot of its eye-catching language in order to put over an anti-populist message. So that's why I'm, I'm optimistic. Deliberative democracy and macro. Mm. <laughs> Fantastic. Yes, sir. All right. Um, I'm going to uh, have a plug alert for our next week's show. Uh, we have Steve Burton, who uh, our first segment is going to be on sleep, how to get more sleep and how to enjoy it. Steve Burton is going to talk about snoring apparatus equipment, and Rafael Paleo will discuss why we sleep and why it's important and why it makes you happy. Um, Margaret Redeem will discuss boilerplate, why there's that language in terms of conditions on the Internet, why you blow it off, and why what the legal implications are. Carl Smith, a professor at Northwestern, will talk about the great fire of Chicago and resilience to um, mass disasters like a fire or a pandemic. Uh, Rebecca Diamond, an economist will, uh, from Stanford, will be speaking, as will Monica Gandhi. Um, Monica is working at the University of California, San Francisco, on the efficacy of mass and how it uh, reduces transmission and um, gives more asymptomatic uh, exposures. Uh, with that, that ends today's session. I want to thank our speakers, as always, for a fantastic conversation today. Um, really interesting. I'm so happy with it. Uh, and also to our listeners for participating and listening in and uh, learning something, too. Um, that's it. You may hang up. Uh, today is done. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.